we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Hello and welcome to Done By Law for another week. You're with Ria, Bonnie and Ali. And this week we're bringing you this show from Nam or Melbourne, from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from the Surf Coast and the stolen lands of the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and also from Mianjin, from the stolen lands of the Turbul Jagara people in Queensland, where Ria's hanging out in ISO with her mum. We pay our respects to those lands, to those people, their culture, their courage and their resilience. Today we're looking at ways that Aboriginal decision-making processes are helping protect culture and keeping Aboriginal people safer through the criminal justice system in Victoria. We're talking restorative justice and we're also talking about a beautiful possum cloak that's keeping culture real and present in the children's court. But first, uh, it seems strange not to acknowledge what a huge week it's been with protests in the US, Australia and around the world in response to the police brutality against black people and following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis by a police officer. We saw last week the Supreme Court in New South Wales ban Black Lives Matter protests and then an 11th hour reprieve from the Court of Appeal who overturned it and thousands of people rally across Australia. We also saw last week the High Court deciding that the deliberate and intentional deployment of tear gas on four teenagers by prison officers in Darwin's Dondale Youth Detention Centre was unlawful. And as the Law Council President Pauline Wright says, it is a timely reminder that the use of force on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples will not be tolerated in Australia and that a justice reinvestment approach the redirection of funds spent on incarceration currently uh, to community support prevention and rehabilitation programs is urgently needed to reduce the disproportionate number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the justice system. So there's a long way to go, but our two guests this evening are blazing some trails in these spaces of restorative justice, and we'll hear from Jared Hughes and Ashley Morris, who are two young men working inside the justice system. First up, we'll hear from Jared Hughes from the Centre of Innovative Justice. Rhea caught up with Jared a couple of days ago to talk more about restorative justice and Aboriginal-led decision-making. Today we're talking to Jared Hughes. He's a Tungarong man, Senior Advisor, Research and Advocacy from the Centre of Innovative Justice, and he's here to tell us about restorative justice. Thanks for your time and welcome, Jared, to our show. Thank you, Rhea. Thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. In a moment, we will talk about restorative justice and what that might mean for people impacted by crime and criminalisation. But before we do that, it feels important, doesn't it, to mention what's going on in the US? 
Mm. Um, yeah, first the murder of Minneapolis man George Floyd and the menacing presence of the police and army on the street. Jared, you're an Aboriginal man working in the justice system in a range of ways, and I'm sorry to ask, and I know it's a really tough time right now, but would you like to make a comment on George Floyd's killing and how it's sitting with you? Yeah, so I guess in addressing this, I come from the perspective of a, a Tangarong man, someone who's worked in and around the justice system for a while, and I guess importantly, I don't come from the perspective of Aboriginal people who have experienced the direct effects of death in custody or the death of a, of a family member. So I think that um, their, their voices are probably most relevant to this uh, mm. discussion. Um, but in saying that, yeah, I think I think like two big things come across for me. I think the um, the first is that the murder of George Floyd I think kind of exposed what happens in the justice system that what usually happens behind closed doors. And I think um, I've always had the feeling that if people knew what the justice system actually looks like and if people knew how the justice system is experienced by minority groups in particular and Aboriginal people, then the conversation that we'd be having about the justice system would be quite different. I also think um, that it's, it's kind of a curious time for me as well. I've, I've been thinking about Aboriginal over-incarceration for a large part of my kind of adult life, but it's interesting to see that, that, that these issues have become mainstream. And I think um, it's a time to be kind of clever and strategic about how we put forward ideas around how we can actually reduce Aboriginal over-incarceration. So yeah, those would be kind of my, my two thoughts. For me, to hear you say that these ideas are entering the mainstream, I think that sounds like a really encouraging thing. Is that how you're seeing it, that it is becoming much more mainstream and understood, you know, in the broader community that this is what happens behind closed doors? Yeah, like it's it's quite strange to me to see kind of mainstream media outlets um, pushing the, or promoting the, the Black Lives Matter cause after kind of vilifying Aboriginal people in various ways over so many years. And I mean, I don't want to be too over-optimistic over about these things, but hopefully there is a bit of a, a kind of shift in the, the public debate around the way that we talk about the treatment of Aboriginal people generally, but also the, um, the issue of over-incarceration. Yeah, let's keep that conversation alive. If you don't mind, uh, let's, uh, let's swing into the, the other conversation we also want to have about, <laughs> around restorative justice, because it has bearing yeah. on this too, doesn't it? So, so can, you, can you tell us a bit about restorative justice and the work that you're doing? Yeah, so what I'm doing at the moment, I'm working at the Centre for Innovative Justice. We do a, a range of things around improving the justice system for the people who experience the justice system. Um, but in particular, we run a restorative justice service called Open Circle. Restorative justice is an innovative justice response that brings to together the, the parties to harm. So I guess defined really broadly, restorative justice brings together um, what you might call a victim or a survivor and an offender or perpetrator to talk about the experience of harm, to acknowledge the harm and to kind of come up with ways of uh, addressing the harm and uh, improving the relationship between the parties. I guess there's different, there's various different forms of restorative justice, which we can talk about, but um, the form delivered by the Open Circle Services Restorative Justice Conferencing, which involves parties sitting around a circle and kind of coming up with responses to, to harm. 
And is it limited to particular kinds of harm or is it basically any time an issue comes within the criminal justice system, if the parties agree, what are the kind of uh, parameters around it? That question is dealt with differently by different restorative justice services. And I think, yeah, I think that each, each service would differ. I think that within restorative justice services offered within the youth justice jurisdiction, there's more of a focus on serious offending, but there are limitations on the type of offending that can be dealt with. What I'm thinking about now, you know, given our introductory, the space we were in, talking about police violence, can you imagine a restorative justice approach, you know, when there's been police brutality, given the differentials in power, given the historical issues, given racism that's entrenched? Is that the kind of thing that ultimately, if we really succeeded in bringing a very sophisticated kind of restorative justice, do you think it could really get at those systemic issues? Well... I guess it depends what type of restorative justice you're talking about. I think something that's probably happened over the past few decades as restorative justice has become more mainstream is that the the way in which restorative justice happens has become part of the, it has become integrated into the criminal justice system and has become kind of formulaic in the way that it's delivered. And I think that's kind of at odds, you could say, with the, the way that restorative justice initially came about. I think it was a big part of the movement was around questioning the broader social structures which contribute to things like racialised policing or Aboriginal over-incarceration. So I guess this is kind of getting beyond the um, the restorative justice services that are offered currently within our justice system. Mm. But there is a model of restorative justice which opens up questions around power dynamics and other forms of kind of inequality and social structures and opens those issues up to part of the discussion around addressing harm. But then, yeah, I mean, that's getting quite far from from what's currently offered. Mm. But isn't it great to kind of open up that space and it sounds like almost a return to its origins to really reimagine what's possible if we actually see what's there and and talk about it. Mm. Yeah, and I, I guess the other point is that by bringing people together, you then create the opportunity for those conversations to happen, which I guess in the mainstream justice system, there is there is very limited opportunity for those kind of conversations to be had. Yeah. I heard you say when we were having our prep chat yesterday, Jared, that restorative justice actually is able to adapt the justice system so it can adapt itself to Aboriginal cultures. I thought that was intriguing. And so I wonder if you would say more about that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's I think maybe it's important to kind of foreground that conversation by saying that there's currently a treaty process happening in Victoria and I guess the issue around um, improving the justice system for Aboriginal people is particularly pressing at this time with things we've been talking about. And one way to do that is to increase Aboriginal control and self-determination within justice. Uh, we've got a, a largely Aboriginal controlled and self-determining health system there's no reason why we can't think about doing the same thing in the justice system. So with, with improving, bringing about cultural responses in um, restorative justice, I think that the model here is probably the family group conferencing um, model in New Zealand. So that came about largely as a result of Maori community activism against um, the way in which Maori young people were treated by the child protection, uh, child welfare and criminal justice system. And that model is based on Maori principles of culture. And the mainstream model is actually, that, that model is, is used by non-Maori as well. So mm. it's principles that Maori, of Maori culture that guide 
the youth justice system response as a whole, not just in the way that it responds to marry young people. Yeah. I'm also wondering, when we're talking about the influence of Maori communities, and I'm guessing there's a huge influence in the Koori court on Aboriginal cultures and how that can adapt the criminal justice system. Would you say that there, there's a restorative approach in Koori courts, given though that they're a sentencing court at the end of the day? How do we, how do we hold those two things? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends in the large part how you define restorative justice. And if you, if you define restorative justice as an outcome as opposed to a process, then you might say that there are restorative outcomes that are achieved through jury courts. And those might include things like um, Aboriginal people um, connecting to cultures, to connecting to culture, sorry, or improving their connection to their community through the elders that sit on the jury uh, court. Mm. But I guess the point for me is that um, Koori courts are, are sentencing courts and we want to include Aboriginal participation in the justice system before our community gets to the sentencing stage. Yeah. So um, if we can include Aboriginal voices in more diversionary um, interventions like kind of pre-charge restorative justice as, as is the case in New Zealand, yes. then I think that would be a really, a really positive outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, Jared, we're running out of time. I think this has been a really rich conversation. I've enjoyed it enormously and really appreciate your time. Yeah, no worries. No, thanks, for, thanks for having me on. Okay. Throughout the month of June, 3CR is running a station appeal. We're asking you, the listener, to donate to keep the station going. 3CR relies on the support of our listeners, but we know that many of you are doing it hard. So if you can't, we get it. But if you can... Head to 3cr.org.au to make your tax-deductible donation to the 3CR Station Appeal. That's right, it's 3CR's annual Station Appeal. Um, And due to COVID-19, we can't do our usual fundraiser thing. So we're really, really, really relying on our support of our listeners to keep us on air. So instead of our Radiothon, what we're asking people to do is head to our website and donate online. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. So June is the perfect time to donate if you can before the end of the financial year. And Look, we all we know that there are a lot of people out there doing it really tough at the moment. So if you can't do it, we get it. But if you do have some spare dollars, you can take action and make sure 3CR keeps broadcasting Radical Radio. Now more than ever, we know that we need independent media. So if you can put your money where your ears are, chip in if you can, head to www.3cr.org.au. Yo, 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 yo,
by Emily Wuramara from her album titled Milyakbara. And next up, we're hearing from Ashley Morris, Manager of Koori Services and Programs at the Children's Court of Victoria. We're with Ashley Morris, Manager of Koori Services and Programs at the Children's Court of Victoria. Welcome, Ashley, to the show. Thanks, Ria. So just to jump right in, um, been reading up a bit on the, and correct my pronunciation, is it the Naramala Gambu project in the Children's Court? Yep, close enough, Naramala Gambu. (laughs) Lovely. Can you tell us a little bit about it, Ash? Yeah, so Naramala Gambu is a culturally appropriate process for Aboriginal families with matters in the Child Protection Division of the Children's Court. So basically, court done in a way that suits the needs of Aboriginal people coming through the door. How did it come to be? Like, who who created this process, and like, how did you come to be in this role? Yeah, there's a there's a fair bit to the background, um, and I'll run you through it as quickly as possible. But in in Victoria, we have the Aboriginal Justice Agreement, which, which is there to you know monitor and and implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody yeah. to obviously stop, to address the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the justice system. So part of that justice agreement, the, the Victorian courts um, created the Koori Courts in 2002 uh, out in Shepparton. Yes. And, and what the Koori Courts are is a sentencing court for Aboriginal accused you know, in the criminal division of the magistrate's court. And, and part of that process is we have Aboriginal elders and respected persons um, sit for the sentencing compensation to provide cultural advice to the magistrates and the courts, but also to support the accused going through court. And then obviously we had the bringing home report, you know, there was an inquiry into the effects of the stolen generation, mm-hmm. which made a number of recommendations uh, to, to, I guess, stop the hurt and stop the intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and then we had these great reports to try and make the world a better place for Aboriginal people in the justice system, um, but not much sort of happened until the late 90s when the states and territories got together to discuss the potential of starting an Aboriginal justice agreement. And then in 99, the Victorian government entered into an Aboriginal justice agreement with the Victorian Koori community. Uh, And, you know, fast forward today, we have a a large number of programs aimed at reducing the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people um, involved with the justice system. So the, the Aboriginal justice agreement is governed by the Aboriginal justice forum, which is where the heads of jurisdictions in government meet with Koori community to discuss justice outcomes. So if we fast forward to 2009 uh, at the Aboriginal Justice Forum in Geelong, the Koori community said, look, we've, we've got Koori courts in county court, magistrate's court, children's court, we've got police, Aboriginal liaison officers, we've got everything, but we would love to see you know, a Koori court for child protection to, mm-hmm. to help our families going through, which was great. I, I wasn't... Around involved as heavily as I am now back then, but I, I think they put together a you know a bit of a steering committee and come up with a bit of a model, and it didn't quite get the traction we we would have liked, mm. uh, and it sort of you know it didn't die down. Like there, was, there was always a need there for it, yeah. um, but you know we, we didn't get the Curry hearing day or Curry court for family division we wanted. Yeah. 
Mm. And then in 2012, there was the Cummins report into Victoria's vulnerable children, yeah. uh, and that made a direct recommendation that um, the Children's Court look at a Koori hearing day or a Koori court, you know, a culturally appropriate process for Aboriginal families in the family division, uh, which is great. The steering committee got back up and running again, and, and again, we didn't get all the traction we needed, but still made some pretty significant process uh, progress. Mm. And then we fast forward to 2014, 2015, the Children's Court um, built a new Children's Court in Broadmeadows next door to the old Magistrates Court. And the idea of that court was to try new things. You know, it's a court of innovation. They wanted to try new things in the family division to get better outcomes for, you know, the whole community. And attached to that, there was funding to obviously try new initiatives. And, and one of those was the Crew Hearing Day. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky enough to get that role. But my, my role had two functions, and that was to develop and implement a Crew Hearing Day for the family division. Mm but also to support Aboriginal families coming through through the court itself. That, that's sort of where it come from, and I guess what it is, how it works. In, in the mainstream court, uh, what, what a sort of normal day looks like is there'll be a new application at the court. Uh, you will arrive at the court, you'll check in, the paperwork might not be there, so you'll wait in the foyer until your name's called, and then you'll you know, go to the legal aid office to get, get a lawyer if you need or want one. By that time, it's about 12, 1, to um, then your matter gets called into court and then you walk into a room where there's a magistrate you know sitting quite high on, on what we call the bench mm. oh the, yeah and then the lawyers sit around the table and you sit in sort of the gallery of the court where you know a bunch of people you've only just met or not even have met mm. um, basically discuss what's going on with your kid that might have gone into out-of-home care yeah that's right yeah, yeah. so a protection application can be by emergency which is you know, removal of the child following a, an incident that puts the child at risk yeah. or, or by notice, which is a, a little less um, serious, but obviously the Department of Health and Human Services have, have some concerns around the children's safety. So that, that, that was sort of the mainstream way. But what, what we did is um, we employed a career family support officer and Marie Segal was our, our first one mm. and still is our only one. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and her role really is just to be there to get the people through the day. So make sure they fully understand what's going on with court and know that they have a voice. Their voice can be heard either through the lawyer or if you're self-representing, um, that you can have your say. Yeah. And how do you how do you bring in Aboriginal-led decision-making in such a desperate situation with such unequal power dynamics going on? So the, the, the Act says to be a party, you need to be a parent or a step-parent. So, uh, that, and that's to have a, you know, a legal say in, in the process. But what we've found for Aboriginal families is that, you know, the person looking after these children for the majority of their life may not be a parent or a step-parent. Mm. So our role is really to extend the invite to those that need to be there mm. so that the magistrate can have all the information they need to make the correct decision mm. about these children. So, so really, we're kind of like, Family networking, we, we, we make sure the right people are in the room at the right time to make sure that the magistrate or the decision maker has all the information they need. Yeah. And how, how do you think that changes outcomes? Because I'm assuming that because you're making sure the right people are in the conversation that I'm guessing there's a reduction in numbers of kids going into out-of-home out of care or if they do, they go into kinship care. Like what's the real difference you're seeing from that work? 
Yeah, that, that's right. I guess if, if you look at the history of Australia, and when I say history, I mean, I guess the, the real history, the way mm. Aboriginal people were, were treated, and you look at, you know, the forced removals of of children from their, from their family and culture, what we find, or what, what I see, particularly at our work at Broadmeadows, is, is the families coming through this court may not want to speak with the department for fear of what's happened to them when they were children. So, so what happens is, if the family aren't here to to let the decision maker know what's going on, yeah. then the only information the departments, uh, the magistrates relying on, is that of the department, mm. which which isn't a, a bad thing. But you know, there, there's been a number of times in Maranello Gumbu where you know extended family members have, have told the court what the support structures look like at home, um, which which generally is you know enough to keep the children safe. And protected. When I've heard you talk about this, there's a sense of, um, and I think I've seen a, a picture, there's a table, uh, people are sitting around a table and I've heard you tell a story about a possum fur that was stitched together by a few different um, hands. Are you, would you be willing to tell us that story? Yeah, yeah, I probably should have said that when I was telling you a bit about the program itself, but um, yeah. the, the, the physical environment of the court is completely different to what, you know, a mainstream court would, would be. Um, obviously, we've all watched the the crime shows where it's quite a serious, intense environment. What we've what we've tried to do at Broadmeadows is to bring that stress down of being in a quite an intimidating building. Yeah. Um, so on the on the walls in the courtroom itself, we have you know paintings from local artists and 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 young people from the local community. And, and when I mean local, I mean one of the one of the artists live you know, three blocks from the court, that that sort of local. So when you yeah, come in, okay. yeah, when you come in, you see your auntie's artwork up there and you already know that you're connected to someone else mm-hmm. in this building. And in, in the middle of the bar table, so uh, historically bar tables are just a big square bar table where the lawyers stand and make their submissions. But obviously in Maramala Gumbu, all, everyone sits around the bar table and has a conversation. We have a, a big oval bar table, which is, uh, I guess it's, it's not intimidating, but I think it sets a scene that this is serious business we're talking in here, and we, and we need to not forget this is about about children and keeping them safe. Mm. The the wood that we got the table built from is stringy bark from South East Australia, so it's you could say it's indigenous to mm. <laughs> to the to the area, mm. and it's 100% recycled. Mm. And and on top of that big oval bark, welcoming bark table, we have a possum skin cloak, which was designed and put together by about 80 uh, you know, Aboriginal children and young people over a long weekend. And then what, what happened in the, on the final day is we invited lawyers, child protection workers, and even the magistrates to come down and the children could talk about their connection to this possum skin cloak and what being an Aboriginal person in, in this day and age is. You know, We still are practising our cultures. So what we do is we put that in the middle of the bar table. And, and what that reminds everyone of is these children have a connection that we need to maintain through any decision made in this court at this bar table. Mm. So it's quite powerful, and when when things you know don't go to plan or or, or quite emotional, you you you'll watch the the children, young people, and their families. They'll they'll put their hands in that cloak, and and it just it's not soothes them, but you know it calms the calms the feeling. It's quite tactile, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The words I've got is like it's like a safety um, blanket almost. Yeah, yeah. So, so traditionally, you know, that these things would keep you warm in the winter. They'd keep you dry in the rain. 
and you know it's what kept your family warm and we're trying to trying to bring that visual into court to say that you know unfortunately we may have to make a decision here that no one wants to make but we need to keep this kid safe in their identity so really that's a really potent phrase safe in their identity yeah how do you think we can best bring down the high numbers of children being removed in victoria particularly indigenous kids that's a question that could probably be answered in a conversation that could probably span for maybe 50 years but uh, yeah. yeah okay we've got three minutes yeah. i think i think what we've seen at Broadmeadows, and if you if you guys jump on the Children's Court website, you'll see, you know, an evaluation on there that was finished up last year. But the giving the power back to the family and seeing what they want or what they see as being the solution to any problem, and giving them pe- the family the power to see see their plans out. Um, that that that's the best way to do it. There's you can't force people to change but you can you can bring them along the journey for change and and that's what we do at at Broadmeadows. And that's our show for another week. Take care and we'll be back next Tuesday for another edition of Down by Law.